This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. And we're back. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. How are you all doing this afternoon, this evening, this morning, this night, this whenever the fuck? I um, So I am coming to you live stream from my work, which is basically my new, well, not even, well, so I'm, I've moved out of the bedroom closet now. So we have gotten a much nicer place in Austin, Texas, which has treated me very, very well ever since I've moved here. So we have moved out of the bedroom closet. We are, we are moving up and out in the world. And I'm excited because now I'm not in, um, where did I just say I was? I was not in my bedroom closet. I am in my kind of like hallway. I have an open plan in my new apartment. So like kind of the part way between the kitchen and the living room and then my bedroom is open and then the bathroom is open. So it's a very open area, but I'm just kind of, I'll just say I'm in the middle of my new apartment. So that is, that is fantastic. So we have moved up and out in the world, out of closet, uh, out of closet land into middle of apartment world. So that is a very, very challenging, but also actually not challenging at all. That was a horrible choice of words. That was, it's a very, very promising proposition that we are doing this now. That's a better word for it. So now what I wanted to kind of get on to today is actually I am coming at you live from the middle of work as well, because my, my company is a, a decently sized company and you know, it was actually our new fiscal year a couple days ago. Um, they haven't announced any you know, public results or anything yet. It's probably going to come out in a couple days. But I think what usually happens at most companies, and certainly what happens in my company because I'm living through it right now, is whenever we change into a fiscal year, there's a lot of different changes. There's a lot of different things that have gone on. And I moved on to a new role internally within the company. I got a promotion. So I uh, saw Flex. And I moved out. That's part of the reason why I moved out to Texas. I moved out to Texas to take the job better my lifestyle. I really wasn't liking my life in Boston all that much. Maybe we can get to that another time if I choose to expand on that. But wanted to get out to Texas to take the promotion to improve my quality of life, those other things. So went out here, got the promotion. Everything is kind of now, you know, settling in except for the fact that I've had four managers, uh, two, a uh, bunch of different changes in the last couple weeks, in the last two weeks, actually less than two weeks, because uh, we had Memorial Day off on Monday as well, or last Monday, I should say. So it's been a hectic transition to say the start, and I've basically gotten no orders from anybody on what to do. So I'm basically stuck in purgatory just doing, you know, menial bullshit like training and compliance and all that nonsense. So we have to, or it's not nonsense, I would say, we have to do it. But to me, it's nonsense because I like to be active and I like to be doing things that I get paid to do, not, you know, just sitting here 
are going to be doing nothing. So I'm like, well, fuck it. I just, I finished my blog post this morning. Why don't we just uh, knock the shit out? So, okay. So now I, I've been waiting to write this post for a while. I didn't really know how I was going to organize it or how I was going to go about communicating it to all you guys. But I think I finally got a good grip on how I wanted to phrase my argument, how I wanted to get it out there to for all of you guys to consume and to see. And I think it came from, I got a lot of help from a lot of different sources. And I think that it's going to be a different, it's going to be a difficult post to navigate because I think it's a very, very um, inflammatory subject that I'm going to expand on today. So I will just kind of get right into it. We're going to go with it. We're going to see what the fuck happens. And we are going to give it a roll here. So here we go. Private behavior is a relic of a time gone by. Now, Aaron Sorkin has said publicly that the line is completely made up, but it didn't stop it from being one of the most the cornerstones of the film The Social Network. I know, I talk about it in the company a lot, but stay with me here. Set in the very early stages of the founding of Facebook, the company only had a measly 500 million members at the time of its release to a now gargantuan almost 3 billion. The, link was spoken by, the line was spoken by Sean Parker, Facebook's first president, played in one of the most masterful acting performances you'll ever see by the also masterful Justin Timberlake. Said as the introduction between Parker and Facebook co-founders Eduardo Saverin and Mark Zuckerberg, as well later revealed psychotic Brenda Song, the scene serves as the first serious lever that is pulled on Facebook's potential. Parker, famously known for completely reinventing the music industry with its exploits at Napster, and cocaine it later turns out, is the first major player to take notice of the company's soon-to-be massive success. Since it was still very little known at the time, Parker pounced and agreed to meet the two to discuss how he could be of help in developing what he believed to was the next great Silicon Valley unicorn. As Parker sets his course to win over Zuckerberg and Al Saverin for himself, he impeccably begins his course of wooing his suitors. He calls over the waitress, who, with whom he's on a first-name basis, and orders seemingly the whole menu of ridiculously expensive appetizers. He gets them drunk on Appletini, shut up, Brenda Song. He paves a riveting story of his supposed conquest and betrayal by Silicon Valley and how he wants them and how they wanted him to fail. He reveals that he's out for blood. He wants to make them pay by sh for shitting all over him and ruining his once burgeoning career. Parker wanted to make them pay by using his Facebook as his own personal fuck you to the Silicon Valley elite. And there's a scene later in the film that quite literally, literally tells you as much. But even though Parker was incredibly neurotic and unstable, that didn't mean he wasn't brilliant. The two tend to go hand-in-hand hand with another quite often, it turns out. And one thing he was dead-on correct about was Facebook. Later, another amazing but also hilariously fictional line goes as follows. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars, end quote. This blew the co-founders away. The reason why was because, at the time, Facebook was nothing more than a fad. It had a puny 75,000 members and was limited in its capacity to being only a college-regulated social media platform. They had used it to shit all over the wink of lost twins, get an op-ed in the Harvard Crimson, and get simultaneously blown by Brenda Song and her friend in a Harvard bar bathroom. It was far from anything resembled a serious business venture at a time, even though Saverin had put a decent investment in its funding for server space and storage and was planning to go out and look for advertisers. But Parker saw the potential right away. As a boy genius who had hacked and invented his way into bad boydom, he had the near sixth sense that could tell immediately when something could explode, and he viewed Facebook as a creative gunpowder duct taped by sticks of dynamite. Soon, Saverin was forced out of the company, and Parker became the, albeit short-lived until our friend Peter Thiel intervened, business conscience of Mark Zuckerberg, who, not long after this meeting, was running the hottest technology startup since Google. Where Parker was also correct was in the line that opened up this post. 
Parker was talking in terms of strict conspiracy and paranoia about his first stint with his companies. He had no idea what Facebook was to become because no one knew what Facebook was to become. Almost a decade after this meeting took place, the world began to figure out that Parker's quote applied not only to the Silicon Valley hysteria, but to things such as their own cognitive biases and personal data. It seems that, now more than ever, we can't get away from anything anymore. Everywhere we go, we are always followed by our devices in our pockets. They track our location, we feed them, the more information, the more we use the device. People post pictures in their Snapchat stories, their most recent beer virus vaccination cards. We go on one date with someone and begin to flood our feeds with how amazing this one-hit wonder person who we're obviously going to marry is. If a friend decides they don't want to share details, they're labeled as, quote, shady. They must be up to something, simply for the fact that we are left out of the loop. In his Mindfuck, Newsday, or, <laughs> oof, in his Mindfuck Monday newsletters, Mark, Z- Mark Manson, had, Jesus, Mark Manson has been covering this trend in recent weeks. As an objective of a thought leader that has existed in modern times, one that relies almost empirically on data and time-tested studies, Manson has expanded on this premonition by Parker and concluded the same thing. Spurned by things such as social media and our never-ending cycle of attention consumption, our overindulgence in both the private and public of things has proven to be detrimental to us as individuals and as a society. Data is showing that, with our evolved social consciousness and insight into most everything happening in our world, too much awareness is turning out to be a bad thing. And this might seem counterintuitive to most. It did to me. I wrote a whole fourth of a post on it, which we'll get to it later. More things are coming out of the woodwork now. People that have been trampled upon by society are beginning to rise up against the modern veil of oppression. Society is getting equalized. The people that have been on the wrong side of history are getting their just desserts. Or is there perhaps something else going on? About two months ago, my manager, I will most likely, like I said before, have had eight of them by this point in my year of working for the company, so good luck in trying to figure out if you try, asked my team over Zoom if we were involved in ERGs at work. An ERG, or Employee Resource Group, is a group that is formed within the workplace as an arm of diversity and inclusion that serves a specific demographic of people. While this usually involves some kind of ethnic group, they have expanded to include the people with, include people with disabilities, generational leadership, military veterans, and the pride community. I'm in the disabilities ERG, and I hate it. It sucks. I don't think it solves anything. I personally don't think much about the way corporations go about diversity, equity, and inclusion does in aggregate. But being the good employee I like to think I am, I expanded it upon it to my manager and told her about my experience. One of my coworkers is in the one for military veterans, and she did the same thing. But my manager's response shocked me because she apologized. My manager went on about how she, quote, needed to get more involved in these issues at work, most of which were working to empower people within these communities. My first thought when these words fell out of her mouth was, why? Why on earth would she ever consider apologizing for this? She has a life. She has a large family. She's very young and probably a decently vibrant social life. She's had a serious boyfriend for years. She's in a job that requires a lot of diligence and hard work. And yet she feels the need to apologize to her subordinates about not being, for lack of a better word, woke enough? This perplexed me, to say the least. It's hard not to notice this trend going on in the broader culture, much to Manson the fictionalized Sean Parker's point. Michi Darko of the Flatbush Zombies pointed out the complete and utter absurdity of posting a black square on your Instagram feed, as if that was in any way to make black people feel as if you, quote, stood with them against largely isolated incidents of police brutality. Melinda Gates wrote a book about empowering and uplifting women while her husband was seeking marriage advice from a guy who ran a child sex trafficking room with much of the world's elite as his clientele. There's actually a hashtag that auto-populates in the LinkedIn search bar that says hashtag stop Asian hate, 
as if the vast majority of the people that use the platform need to be reminded that they are, indeed, not racist pieces of vermin. Our world, it seems, is too aware. A maelstrom of culture, identity, and mob mentality is forcing us to care about everything, sometimes by malevolent and malicious means. And it's driving us fucking nuts. Because, you see, this isn't just a problem within the broader context of our societal fabric. This is also very much a personal issue. There are countless examples of it, but there is one that, especially for me, fits this trend perfectly. Dating apps has, have mind-fucked and mind-hacked the way that men see women. I know this because I am one. It's completely and utterly shit on the possibility of men comfortably easing into relationships, particularly when they're young and less mature. Men, as we've covered previously, are initially drawn to attraction to women by the possibility of a healthy lifestyle and if they can breed and rear children. In the times of yesteryear, men were forced to figure this out by examining the options in their sphere of influence, making do or not with the options and skill they had, and then making the best out of that situation. But in the present, we have an unforeseen problem. What happens when your sphere of influence widens? With dating apps, your capacity for viewing these ideal traits of women goes through the roof. Even worse, we now have an algorithm that learns your preferences as you swipe which then tailors your choices to even more what you deem attractive. And this on its face, to be fair, does not seem like a problem, like, at all. What guy wouldn't want a bunch of tra attractive women dropped on his lap without having to put in hardly effort all into the universe? It almost seems too easy. And that's exactly the trap. Dating apps numb your brain and desensitize you to the shit that actually matters, particularly for men. Say you go on a date with a girl you find attractive and it goes well. You go home feeling good about yourself. That is until you open up the app and see a hotter girl looking at you right in the face and bragging you to fuck her brains out. Well, at least in our stack steroid loaded brains, those men typically have. Or maybe she's not even just as hot as the girl you just went out with, but she might have a nicer ass. Or come to think of it, wasn't that girl's forehead a little too big? Or maybe it wasn't that, but her face was too small. Oh, look, a girl in a tube top that has a slightly heavier cup size. Dating apps carry no substance. It instantly became, becomes eviscerated by the spice of death variety. You soon become so consumed by the fast-twitch part of your sexual brain that you begin to nitpick every woman you see to death. You kill their image in their head by making them suffer a death of a thousand cuts. Because the reality is, there is always a hotter woman out there. The chances of you finding the hottest woman in the world are not just slim, they're impossible, mostly because attractiveness is arbitrary. And there's always that good old, you live in America and this girl lives in a slum in Bangladesh scenario that can rear its ugly head. I envy the men of previous generations for the strict fact that it seems so much easier when you didn't know what was out there. It makes it worse that my dad hit the lottery with my mom, who was basically the most holistically beautiful person I might have ever seen in my life. Then the fragile male ego gets going, and that's one hell of a cocktail, to put it mildly. This is driving men, and me, insane. What are we supposed to think? Are we succumbing to diminishing returns of value? Why can't we just shut out the noise and leave the world the fuck alone? Well, the answer to all these questions is, it's complicated. Very complicated, as it turns out. But it's a problem that I think is worth solving. Our mental state of how we perceive the world, a world that's too aware, depends on us getting it right. And so to navigate this, we need to see what makes people aware of things in the first place, why broader awareness is being pushed in our society, and why we should choose our selective awareness very carefully. Because if you don't, you could end up with a coked-out Silicon Valley flunky as the president of your tech startup, or something like that. So, there are a lot of people that get mentioned as, quote, heroes in our society. But, oddly enough, 
not enough people talk about J.D. Vance as a part of that demographic. J.D. Vance was born in Middletown, Ohio, a small town in the southwestern area of the state whose entire economy was almost fully centered on AK Steel, a local steel plant that just shut its doors before being acquired by another company called Cleveland Cliffs. His family placed their roots in Jackson, Kentucky, a small hillbilly town in the middle of the boonies, where most of his family made their livings working in the coal mines. After a hometown scandal, Vance's grandparents moved to Middletown along with other hillbillies on a really kind of pilgrimage to the other parts of the Midwest, while the rest of his family stayed back in Jackson. His grandfather took a job at AK Steel, then called Armco, and they settled into a middle-class lifestyle that was typical of the mid-20th century Midwest. They had a nice house, a decent yard, and a stable income, with three children to boot. The schools weren't overly fantastic, but they were nice for a public school system and a then-thriving economy. Vance was born to his mother, who was the middle child of the three children, in 1984. As a child, Vance idolized his family, particularly the older men in his family and his, and his grandparents. He began to see the beginnings of the hillbilly value system emerge. Dedication to country and family, intense loyalty, hard work, and faithful service, particularly in the church. He viewed rural Kentucky as a paradise, and would frequently go back and play in the beautiful fields and rolling hills with his extended family and cousins. However, Vance began to realize very early in his life that something was wrong. In his extended family, he was told early about a story in which the older men mentioned earlier, whom he idolized, would resort to intense acts of violence at the insult of a family member. They ran an electric saw up and down the back of someone who insulted their honor. They made a man who had insulted one of their sisters eat a pair of her underwear under the threat of death. Additionally, they weren't the kindest people to their kin that they were protecting, either. Throughout each household, there was constant cussing, yelling, and even threats of earlier violence. Sometimes they acted on those acts of violence. Vance's grandmother once set her husband on fire and broke his nose by smashing a face with a vase. Other healthy behavior undoubtedly helped fuel this. The family ate like shit, drank like fishes, and smoked like chimneys. This was a bizarre dichotomy, as Vance soon began to notice. How could group entities embody such great and horrible traits simultaneously? He also began to find out that this wasn't an isolated incident, either. Many of his friends were immersed in similar situations. The verbal abuse, bad marriages, and violence were common in their families as well. He also noticed, quite astutely, that nothing really seemed to change from generation to generation. His family members all acted about the, about the same about all the big things. The apples, more or less, didn't fall from the trees. In fact, a lot of times they hadn't fallen at all. Which is what makes what happened next so catastrophic. Even though Vance's family and the hillbilly culture they came from didn't change, the world, per usual, didn't give a fuck. The unionized labor that they so desperately depended on soon began to get busted up and wither away, causing wages that people depended on to feed themselves and their families to drop precipitously without their protection. Corporations, furthering on this, discovered that it was much easier to place capital investments such as factories in developing countries where market forces determined that they could pay workers far less money for the same output. Higher education soon became the new norm and standard, replacing physical labor, but at a much, much higher premium and barrier to entry. The hillbillies were caught off guard by this. They had no idea what to do. Not a lot of people would if this much change happened in seemingly rapid fashion. So they did what most cultures would. They leaned into what they had previously worked. They increased their dedication to their values, but they also decreased, increased their dedication to their vices. But unfortunately, when things that give you utility and value, your job, your family, stability, etc., begin to dry up, the vices usually begin to win you over. And that trend manifested itself into a single person in Vance's life, his mother. Vance's mom graduated at the top of her class at, a local, at the local public school and soon got registered as a nurse, something she had always dreamed of being. 
However, she soon became pregnant at 19 with Vance's sister and had to take a hiatus. Vance soon came along shortly after, but trouble, the trouble followed. His father was his mother's third husband, and they divorced not much later. Men began to come into his mother's life and prompt to leave, which left her broken and distraught and Vance without a solid father figure in his life. The stability was so desired by Vance's mother that it was never, was never to be had. No man wanted to stay with her long term. This turbulent household life didn't do any favors for Vance and his sister, particularly when the men were abusive assholes. Soon, his mother began to dip further and further into the only thing that would make her feel better. Drugs. She soon was beginning to have frequent stints in rehab, which took money off the table and substituted it for more stress. The culmination of all this has left Vance's mother as angry, neglectful, and resentful, all which soon began to take a toll on Vance and the rest of the family. The violence that once plagued his family soon began to creep into his own house, culminating when he was a teenager after his mother nearly crashed their car in a suicide attempt, chased him across a field, and threatened to kill him before he took shelter in a stranger's house when she, while she got taken away by the police. His sister soon left, got married, only once by the way, and happily, and began to have children, leaving Vance alone in this incredibly toxic environment. Eventually, he was able to escape and live with his grandmother, the person he loved more than anyone in the world. After high school, Vance joined the Marine Corps, fought in the Iraq War, graduated from The Ohio State University, and went to Yale Law School. He is now a venture capitalist based out of Cincinnati that invests in Midwestern entrepreneurs, is happily married with two children, and just announced a bid to run for Senate in the state of Ohio for the year 2022. Oh, and he also released a book, which is entitled Hillbilly Elegy, in 2016. While hesitant to write a memoir, he was only in his early 30s at, early 30s at the time. He was convinced by his mentor at Yale, and initially published a run of 10,000 copies. The book absolutely exploded, getting lauded and criticized by nearly every major news outlet in the country. Bill Gates and our friend Peter Thiel, who is close with Vance and is now funding his venture capital firm at SuperPAC, both said it was a required reading. There are a lot of things that stand out about the book, which is excellent. The first thing was Vance's unabashed criticism towards his own community, pointing out their hypocrisy towards things like an emphasis on family when a good portion of them are broken, and hard work when they live off of welfare by flexing the latest iPhone and Gucci bag while waiting in the store line with food stamps. However, most importantly at the time, was the swing of Appalachia from a largely Democrat base to Trump country because of all the sociological factors stated. The New York Times posted an article days after the election entitled, quote, Six Books to Help Understand Trump's Win and Hillbillyology was one of them. It remains to this day potentially the most complicated and powerful book on American culture I've ever read. There's a reason why the word elegy, derived from the ancient Greek, translates to tragedy. But something stood out to me during Vance's explosion of superstardom. I found it hilarious of how many people were, quote, shocked by what Vance revealed about the culture of white Appalachia. I noticed it all the time growing up. People were completely shook by what Vance wrote, and yet didn't, didn't surprise me or anyone else like me who knew of him either. Simultaneously, I was upset that people didn't know. I wanted people to realize that my people were suffering, and that something needed to be done in order to help them. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I saw this all growing up. It really affected my mom's side of the family pretty bad. But no one did, and no one seemed to care. They only seemed to care about us when they got, somehow got involved in Trump mania or whatever. But another incident when I moved to Austin gave me further insight. A few weeks ago, while working out, I came across a young kid named J.M.L. Napoleon who popped up in the local news. I couldn't change the channel, so I watched it, and it turns out it would pay off. J.M.L. Napoleon, a 15-year-old high school student, had willingly went back into his neighbor's house as it was burning to oblivion in order to pull his neighbors out and save their lives. The amount of heroism that was involved was staggering. 
This kid was a hero, and I should was proud to even have witnessed the story. But no one seemed to care. Tucker Carlson didn't lead a show with it. Neither did Anderson Cooper, or Chris Hayes, or Sean Hannity. They were too busy about talking about how horrible Joe Biden is, global temperatures rising of 16th of a percent, critical race theory, or Demi Lovato adopting new pronouns. You know, more important shit. Much more important shit than a teenager pulling innocent people out from quite literally the jaws of hell. And that's when it hit me. It's not that JML Napoleon and J.D. Vance aren't deserving of criticism and praise. They certainly are. It's simply a matter of proximity. It's a matter of what you're aware of, not whether things are deserving of your attention or care or not. And if you think about it, this makes all the sense in the world. Of course you're going to care about what is close to you. Why would you care about things that you aren't? Why would you waste your time? Look at my fundraiser I told you about in last week's post. What three causes did I raise money, raise money for, if you can remember? I raise money for special needs children and families. This makes sense. My sister has autism, and I know the wide variety of struggles that family like mine go through on a daily basis. I raise money for military veterans. This makes sense. I'm an incredibly patriotic individual who loves his country. I have numerous military members in my family and close friends, my grandfather being the most prominent, and one of my best friends is currently deployed in the Marines. I raise money for small businesses. This makes sense. I'm a huge proponent of capitalism, entrepreneurship, and social mobility. My family once immigrated here dirt poor and now have grown largely prosperous, and I have a family laden with entrepreneurs, including my mother twice and two of my uncles. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word awareness is, quote, knowledge or understanding that something is happening or existing, end quote. Put another way, awareness is simply being in touch with the world, more specifically, your world. The more likely a repeated pattern or trend is to pop up in your life, the more likely that it will affect you and your behavior. You're more likely to give a fuck if you have skin in the game, which everyone does in at least one arena of the next that are being honest with themselves. And you can see it in the two men I mentioned earlier. J.D. Vance noticed the crisis in hillbilly culture in rural Appalachia and the Rust Belt Midwest, so he took it upon himself to craft a lifestyle where he could align his values with this problem. I'm not sure how much J.M.L. Napoleon loved his neighbors, but he cared enough and was decent enough as a person to not want them to burn alive. He put his own life at risk to save several other people, and it ended up making a gigantic difference in the cost of human life. Awareness simply is knowing what lanes you, should op you can operate into a maximum effectiveness. If we're talking in terms of essential diversification, the law of value economics stating we need to effectively choose our values, awareness fits right in. When we are properly aware of the things that we have investment in, whether we like it or not, the likelihood of our success in those arenas, or at least our ability to coexist and deal with them, increases along with it. However, this is not what is happening now in our current culture. In fact, the complete opposite of awareness is what's happening in our current culture. What is the current, ver what is the current version of what people are calling, quote, awareness is not awareness at all. In the current mode of our society, we are encouraged to be aware of any and everything, to not let anything slip us by. If we do, we're a bad person or something. We can't go anywhere without some virtual signaling banner that tells you to care about something, or to quote, not stay silent, or to post some stupid fucking ribbon on your social media page. Every month is a new awareness month. Every week is some dumb challenge to the status quo. Every day is a stupid-ass holiday celebrating shit that doesn't even matter. Whether it's porpoise infertility, southern sorority girl empowerment, straight white male advocacy, voter rights, or transracial Mexican to Filipino children, there's always something that needs to be lifted up and pay attention to. The narcissism, can, the narcissism can never end. You can never be less informed, you selfish piece of shit. This cannot be the way the world functions, and it isn't the way that it should function. Something has gone horribly wrong, and we must get to the bottom of it. 
I'm not advocating that everyone bow at the altar of JML Napoleon and JD Vance, because that would be counterintuitive to what I'm saying. However, I do believe that their examples are necessary to show just how fucked our scope of understanding of awareness in society is. But that doesn't do us any good without showing what we're up against in the bigger picture, so let's get into that next. So, last week, when I moved into my new apartment in Texas, my mom and I went shopping for a television. I had one that had been our family for about a decade, but and it needed to be mounted on the wall in order for it to fit. The problem is, or the problem was, I should say, it could not be, which led us to the local Best Buy in order to look around for one. Not a lot of people think about shopping for televisions. They're so unbelievably common, particularly when paired with the other screen devices that we constantly have and use at our disposal. There are more screens in the average American household than there are people whose eyeballs watch those screens. What, one, what once was a luxury has now become a commodity. It's truly a remarkable feat of free markets and innovation that we've gotten to this point of ridiculous abundance. As you walked to the back of the store and got to the immaculate wall of LED lights and glass paneling, we began to look around and compare and contrast. There was so much to think about, at least initially, we thought. How big should it be? How many hertz would be optimal? How much would live streaming have an impact on the performance of the device? Was it reliable? On and on we went, looking at screens and trying to nitpick them to death, much like our prior example with men on dating apps. We tried so hard to find the most minute details of differentiation. We combed over them, much like the, like, much like the troopers did to the desert in Spaceballs, which is hilarious, by the way. Please watch the movie. <laughs> the whole process was, in short, exhausting. So much effort was spent out of both of us for something that was so commonplace. As we kept on our crusade, my mom eventually turned to me and said the obvious thing that we were both thinking, but neither had said at that point. What the hell is the damn difference between any of these? Think about that for a second. Maybe listen to the Dr. Dre song to have it really sink in. How absolutely correct my mom was. No one thinks about shopping for a television unless they're really interested in televisions. My dad is one of those people. He really doesn't give a shit about how much in terms of material possessions, but he loves his TVs and wants to make sure they perform up to his standards. We called him during our process to get his opinion and got filled with reams of information that was completely and utterly irrelevant to us outside of the current situation of me having to make an investment in one. But I was glad that my dad was able to do that. His information in the context of the scenario was very helpful, and I think it will pay dividends in terms of the satisfaction I have with my purchase. When people are really into something, when they have skin in the game, they usually have at least some kind of utility in order to inform someone else at least of the basics of whatever that thing is. That is, if they're worth their salt. You'd be surprised, or maybe not, of how many people are not worth their salt. And it's a problem when you really want to drill down into one core truth of whatever information you seek. In my day job, no, I don't do this for a living, I work in sales. Sales gets fetishized a lot in Hollywood and social media, but it's really not that sexy of a job. The potential to make bank is fucking huge, but a lot of people don't make bank. Very few people are great at things that reap that much reward, particularly in something as difficult as high-stakes sales. The act of selling is also hilariously overblown. There are very few negotiations that turn out to be transformative to any client or salesperson. However, it's the high of the upper echelon of the profession of sales that, scale, that sells, and that's what gets communicated. But, in actuality, sales is very simple. So simple that it's almost mundane. Sales, in the most plain of terms, is getting uneducated people more educated about a product or service. This is what makes the people that do the job so valuable and why they have the potential to earn so much money if the company is right. Kevin O'Leary has been on the record, as of many entrepreneurs, that salespeople should be the highest compensated company within a co compensated employee within a company, including C-suite level executives, 
because they are the only ones in the organization that are actively involved in value creation all the time. And they're right. To prove this, I'll ask you a question. Do you do everything in life by yourself? And the answer would be a profound no. Even if you're the most handy person in the world, everyone needs help with something. Superman only exists in comics, and Superman fucking blows anyways. If your sink is backed up, you most likely call a plumber. If you want to learn how to shoot a gun, you enroll in a firearms class in order to get trained by an expert marksman. If you move into a new apartment, you call movers in order to pick up your shit. If you want to buy a new television, you call your hyperactive television enthusiast father. Plumbers sell you on the fact that they have a unique and valuable skills that can help you fix your sink. Expert marksmen sell you on the fact that they can shoot something on time and on target with remarkable consistency, at least hopefully they can. Movers sell you on the fact that they can lift awkward and heavy shit through confined spaces within a designated time frame with, again, hopefully, minimal damage to said heavy shit. Hyperactive television enthusiast fathers don't necessarily sell you because they're your dad, but it's unquestionable that they have more knowledge that you would most likely sacrifice something, most likely your time, for. So, what do television and sales have to do with awareness? I'll tell you. Awareness is salesmanship. Everyone is a salesperson, to indirectly quote Chris Voss. The actual quote is that everything is a negotiation, which can be substituted for sales quite easily, I would argue. The thing is that we don't realize it until we sacrifice something to get whatever it is that person is selling. Sometimes you don't even know what our sacrifice is, and that's what makes it either a really great or really shady salesperson. But in reality, most salespeople aren't really great at sales. Look up any kind of data on the compensation of any decent-sized sales force across any organization to see what I'm talking about. The biggest issue, as far as I can tell with people holding themselves back, is the lack of a solid value proposition. A value proposition, put in the simplest terms, is what benefit a customer would be getting from investing in that product or service that you're trying to sell them. These can range from very complex to very simple. An example of a simple value proposition would be toothbrush would be a toothbrush. You don't want to buy a toothbrush in order to make sure you want to buy a toothbrush rather in order to make sure your teeth stay clean and don't fall out of your mouth. An example of a complex value proposition would be a house. A house varies from person to person in terms of what they want out of that house. Everyone wants clean and healthy teeth, but not everyone wants the same type of house. These two things require very different methods of selling. You can't buy a set of house keys in aisle 15 at your local Walmart for $1.50. Normally, however, the value propositions that most people use are not good. They attempt to microwave a sale, usually by using attention-seeking, eye-grabbing, and self-validating methods in order to impulsively manipulate a customer in order to buy that product or service. They constantly flex the product or service's features. They harp constantly on what the thing does, has, or is. This might seem like to outsiders that are not salespeople, even though that everyone is, but that's beside the point, that this is odd that I would frown upon this. But I am, because it's not the way good salespeople sell products or services. Good salespeople don't sell products or services. Good salespeople sell benefits and value. There are a lot of products and services out there, but the majority of them are overrated and shitty. There are very few products and services that actively provide benefits and value to the person that is consuming them. Say you sell water. If you're someone who sells water, you don't sell it on the premise that water tastes good or is sexy or would look good pouring it over your body in a Vince Vaughn movie. You sell water on the stone-cold fact that you need it to sustain your life and clean yourself so you don't smell like shit. That's a pretty strong value proposition. Most people that I know enjoy being alive and not smelling like shit. Water also provided the greatest and most skilled example of salesmanship, i.e. awareness, just to stay on the topic, I've ever seen. I was at a music festival during the summer in college, and it had been nearly 100 degrees and humid, we were on a blacktop, 
and it was about 11 o'clock at night. I had been dancing and moshing, yes I do mosh, for nearly 12 hours, and it had been 9 since I had last had a drink, the drink in question having alcohol in it. In short, I was absolutely parched. As my friends and I were leaving the concert stage after it ended, we were thirsting for water akin to the predator hunting soldiers in the jungle. Miraculously, we stumbled upon an oasis. A guy was selling 16-ounce plastic water bottles out of a small, wheeled cooler. Delirious and near passing out, we walked over to him and asked what he was selling them for. The man replied that he was selling them for $8 a bottle. This is nothing short of an absurd price. Taking a sampling of the various plastic water bottles that are sold on Amazon, the average price of a 16-ounce bo plastic bottle of water is about $0.70, cents, which makes this guy's price a nearly 15.5x markup. And I bought three of them within five seconds. The thing that they made this guy's value proposition, or cruel Ponzi scheme, however you choose to look at it, so brilliant was that he waited until the opportune moment when his product would have the highest value proposition. In a concert setting, there is almost no enhanced value with selling people water at the beginning or during, when people are focused on getting fucked up and having a great time. But after, when the high comes down, people's throats are part escaped, scraped dry, and they realize they have to check into work at 8 o'clock the next morning, water instantly skyrockets in value. There isn't much benefit and value to selling water at the beginning of a concert, but there is a fuck ton of benefit and value selling it at the end of one. And this was easily the hardest part of my training at my current job. Product pitching, at least in my organization, is a huge no-no, and for good reason. I sell technology to people, and most of the people that went into the massive program with me didn't know a single fucking thing about technology, including myself. But as we would later find out, it was not our job to know about the technology. It was our job to know about the benefits and value that, that the technology could provide. That was our value to the organization. Our counterparts whose job it was to know the technology would do that part, our job was to make the customers buy into it and use it. Once you get over that hurdle, which is a constant process that can take many months, selling is easy if you lean into it hard enough. But this doesn't manifest itself properly into the value proposition of people who preach, quote, awareness. Instead of making their causes visible, people are now beating you over the head with it until you submit to them. Reputational risk, both professionally and socially, is at an all-time high. If you don't buy into what certain people say, depending on the cause, you have the potential to get crucified or fired. It doesn't matter if you have proximity to it, like the situations with JML Napoleon and JD Vance. It doesn't matter if you truly care. All that matters is that you are made to care, and that the mechanism is enforced by mob behavior. All nuance is thrown to the wayside. All that matters is obedience. This is not awareness. It is something much more sinister. Indoctrination. Indoctrination is the opposite of salesmanship. Indoctrination is not awareness. Awareness is optional. It is letting you know that something is happening, but it is not making you do anything about it. This is the whole, quote, freedom thing that middle-aged men on Facebook consistently angrily rant about. If you care, that's fine, but if you don't, that's fine too, until you piss them off about something that they themselves care about. But indoctrination is different. Indoctrination involves force. You make someone care whether they want to or not. Their will doesn't matter. All that matters is the will of the collective that opposes that person. You coerce and intimidate someone to take a pound of their own flesh for something that they may have no skin in the game for, or don't have the desire to participate in at all. This is bizarre, to put it mildly. The hilariously ironic thing about the awareness warriors and woke anti-woke mobsters out there is that they're hypocrites. Carl Jung, the great psychoanalytical psychologist, was once quoted as saying that we criticize in others what we most hate about ourselves. And this is one of the hardest truths that every one of us has to swallow at some point. Or at least it's good for us to swallow it. 
If we ignore it, we risk leaving it in the fog for it to do damage to us later. That's the new rule number three, by the way. Examples of this are aplenty in our society today. Netflix made a, quote, documentary about social media addiction when they themselves are a company that uses algorithms and machine learning to peddle an addictive product to its consumers. Elliot Page railed against straight white males for years on social media, constantly condemning them and their patriarchal demonic behavior. Elliot Page is now a straight white male and is getting lauded for it by nearly everyone in pop culture, including Time Magazine. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump ran largely on anti-establishment populist messaging during their campaigns to become the President of the United States, the person in our country that is the literal epitome of the establishment and the ruling class in our political institutions. Patrice Can Cullors, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, oddly claimed to be a Marxist and socialist while going on a four-home, $3.2 million shopping spree for homes. She also is apparently looking at a property in the Bahamas. If she makes another purchase, Justin Timberlake and Tiger Woods will be her neighbors. Conservatives will trash big tech on the same platforms that big tech operates on. Liberals will say that they're for free speech, but then demand that the senators that drag people, op people operating content platforms in front of Congress force them to take down content that they don't like to see. Crazy Trumpers will call for law and order while saying that what happened at the Capitol building on January 6th was justified. Crazy lefties will condemn the attack on the Capitol building, but not the, quote, protest that caused over $2 billion in damages in 2020 or the group, Antifa, that did most of the destruction. Girls who claim to be environmentally conscious to a guy hitting on them at the bar will do so after making them buy their seventh vodka crayon in a plastic cup, while at the same time requesting a plastic straw so that they don't smear their lipstick. Guys who cl claim to be for, quote, empowering women drag them through the mud to their friends and treat them like fucking garbage. This is not awareness. This is madness, and this is spineless. I laugh at people who say they're, quote, very socially conscious. No, you're not. You're just conscious of the things that you, that you want to be conscious of. But the good news is, this is how it should be. And this is completely okay. Because the truth is, you don't have to care about everything that's going on in the world. You really don't, I promise you. It is healthy and normal for you to let these things fall off your shoulders and into the ether. It doesn't make you a bad person if you don't care about things that others care about. I don't give a single shit about Black Lives Matter. I could give a fuck about outwardly celebrating Pride Month. You'll never catch me giving a single dollar to help, quote, improve the healthcare system. Does that make me a bigot, a racist, a transphobe, or whatever type of a slur you call people who don't donate to healthcare-related charitable organizations? Someone say yes, and that's their right to say that they think that I'm those things. But I believe that it's more nuanced than that. There's levels to this shit, young buck. I have no problem with black people, the pride community, or people who care about the healthcare system. I have a lot of friends and people who I consider to be quite, quite admirable people that all care about those things, or are those things for that matter. Maybe my views will change someday and I will become involved. But for now, I'll stick with the causes I do care about, all of which I mentioned earlier. I am aware of the, all these causes, but I, but I choose which ones to actively participate in. I suggest you do the same, and that's next. F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby is my favorite work of literature I've ever read. It's an absolutely beautiful work of art. I've read it over ten times. From the imagery to the prose to the story, it's just about as perfect of a work of fiction as you can get. In one of the most, more many remarkable exchanges of dialogue, Daisy Buchanan is telling Jordan Baker, uh, Jordan Baker and Nick Buchanan about her hopes for an, Nick Carraway. I just got that confused. Jeez, I'm not, apparently not as big a fan as I thought it was going to be. Daisy Buchanan is telling Nick Carraway and Jordan Baker about her hopes for her infant daughter. She laments, quote, I hope she'll be a fool. 
That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. I don't know if this is where the phrase ignorance is bliss comes from, but that's what Daisy Buchanan was alluding to here. Now, your husband doesn't have to be a cheating and lying sack of shit in order for you to feel this way. But I don't think it would be wise to shut the entire world out either. Like all things, there must be some sort of balance. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. Remember my, quote, fire Italian food line you read a couple minutes ago? Well, my brother had somewhat of a similar, albeit hilarious, ex experience similar to that, that the other day. For context, my brother is the most blissfully unaware person I've ever met in my entire life. He lives in his own little world and really doesn't know how much about the world around it. I have a feeling that this is how most people live their lives, and I envy those people. I can't help myself from noticing my surroundings to such a high degree that they can drive me nuts. That's kind of the purpose of this blog and the podcast, if you haven't noticed. There's a lot of time to talk in the car, particularly when you spend nearly a full 24 hours in the car with your mother. Thank God she can talk a lot and can spend a conversation out of almost nothing. The car ride would have been horrifically boring otherwise. The subject soon turned to my brother. My brother, who had been driving around with his girlfriend, who was also blissfully unaware, perhaps even more so, had been looking around for a place to eat and said that they found a, quote, really good Italian place that he and his girlfriend settled on eating at. My mom asked him the name, and he told him, Fazoli's. My mom and I both laughed for a solid two minutes straight. She could hardly finish telling the story without bursting out in hysterics. Fazoli's, for those who were unaware, like my brother and his girlfriend, is one of the largest and potentially the largest Italian fast food chains in the world. It's generally not what people say when they say they went to a, quote, really good Italian place. My brother was completely oblivious to the fact that it even existed. He thought that he had discovered a diamond when, in fact, he had discovered a piece of coal among thousands of other pieces of coal. But my brother didn't give a shit. He didn't know about it previously or the reputation it had. But now he does, and now he has, in his opinion, a fire Italian place to go when he wants that kind of food. It worked out for him, even though it was a really funny route in order to get him to that point. Daisy Buchanan's quote can also be applied in the negative context as well. For all the, so quote, socially conscious people out there, there's a shit ton of bad stuff going on in the world that no one talks about. The country of India has for months been getting ripped to shreds in horrific fashion because the beer virus finally managed to, spread, managed to spread like wildfire over there like it did in the United States. We should hope and pray that it doesn't do that place in a very in a similar place, such as sub-Saharan Africa. Muslims are being systematically persecuted and genocided in China. A similar thing is happening in Myanmar, as in other places around the world. There is a very troubling amount of data about the amount of young girls that are suddenly coming out as transgender with their friends and immediately going for hormone blockers and cosmetic surgeries. Their parents in the scientific community, most sadly of all, isn't doing a whole lot to question this or stop this. The unemployment rate for people with disabilities is estimated to be at around 80%. So to all the aware, socially contest, woke, anti-woke people out there, how can you sit by and watch horrible things like this go on? Why are you not getting involved? Why aren't you trying to save these people in their worlds? I'll answer my own questions to give you, spare you the trouble. Because they don't want to. And that's okay. And that I can fuck off. Around a year ago, I wrote a post in my value economics series on a subject called comparative value advantage. Comparative advantage is an economic term stating that an economy rather, naturally will regress towards what it is best at and should work on optimizing what that is in order to make the best for themselves in their economy. I argue that the same idea should be applied to values. You will naturally regress to what you value, and you should begin seriously adopting and practicing those values, they sh should they be good values in the first place, in order to make the best chance for a quality life. That by practicing the values in which we truly believe, we can create a light of meaning, life of meaning for ourselves and who is affected by us valuing the things that we do.
I am here on this post to argue that, that, that another thing that is an expansion to this concept. I am a believer that we choose what we are aware of. We, do not be, we should not be indoctrinated or indoctrinate others into following us and our beliefs about things, particularly if it involves coercion and intimidation and shame. That's not awareness. It's basically forming a cult, though hopefully without the bath salts and Charles Manson tagging along. Well, not my favorite chapter or rule, the sixth chapter and rule might be the most powerful in Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. In layman's, i.e. my, terms, get your shit together before you help with shit and criticize other for not doing so. Think about that for a second. How could you morally bring yourself to the point where you lecture a person on how to feel about something when you don't even know what you truly feel about another something? I think a lot of people think that they know how to feel and why they do, but that they don't actually do. Their actions reflect it. They don't make sense. They go off on a riff on social media about odd subjects like the government, or the man, or the system, and name bland and uneducated to topics like the deep state and systemic racism in order to justify their arguments as to why things should be fixed. This is highly illogical, irrational, and frankly, stupid. The thing that I can't stand the most out of anything is when people allow themselves to be easily corrupted into thinking that their life is out of their own control, because it's not. That shit is fucking poisonous, and you should avoid buying it into all costs. The same thing applies with your awareness. Why would you let someone poison your mind into indoctrinating you into what they think is important? It makes absolutely no sense at all. Your life is your life, and if you constantly live to obey other people's commands because of some bullshit sense of internal validation, chances are you won't be fulfilled at all. You must know yourself before you attempt to know what's going on with other people in the world around you. If you don't value something, don't waste your time. Your energy is one of the most important things you have in your arsenal, and you should use it at your peril. What you invest your energy into matters, and it matters a lot. Who gives a fuck if you don't spend your time investing in the welfare of special needs kids, about saving some endangered species of bird, about helping with equity in the workplace? I'll tell you who. Losers. Only someone who is a complete and utter fucking loser will waste their, their own time trying to tell you what you should care about. What scum that person is. How could someone stoop as low as to shame someone for, quote, not caring about something while they themselves seem to care more about you caring than them only caring about serving their own narcissism? The answer, you shouldn't. At all. Comparative advantage and comparative value advantage by this sense is such a beautiful thing because it automatically validates your values, should they indeed be good values. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing because anyone else could be doing any even number of various other things. Someone else will pick up the slack where you lack. Don't want to join any diversity groups at work? Fine, there are a lot of people that do want to. Don't want to run a 5K on Thanksgiving to alleviate child poverty? Fine, there are a lot of people that do want to. Don't want to march in a protest or post a hashtag on social media? Fine, there are a lot of people that do want to. Anyone that tells you you need to, quote, get educated or, quote, stay woke or check your privilege or calls you things like a sellout or fake just on the basis of you not valuing something for a legitimate reason is a fucking loser. If you have your reasoning, and it should it be good, stick to your guns. Don't let people bully and intimidate you so much that you end up selling your soul for something you don't give a shit about. These people aren't as elevated as they think they are. In fact, they're not elevated at all. They're below you. They're petty individuals who can't rip their heads from their own asses in order to see that it's not all about them. They don't respect your individuality and your values, so you should return the favor by not giving them the time of day. Because, odds are... That person who genuinely cares will do a much better job about caring about whatever that thing or vice versa when it flips on you. 
Having your own ownership and skin in the game of these situations is the key to getting far within them. In my estimation, you probably don't care as much as you think you do, particularly if you were bullied into it by some asshat on Reddit. So, let them care. And let you care about the shit that you want to care about. Each will pay off significantly better when you stay in your own lanes and get really into what you want to get into. I mentioned earlier that I thought I was going to contradict one of my favorite posts, the four don'ts. The second don't, if you recall, is don't be ignorant. After hearing myself talk on here, extrapolating upon those thoughts and digging deeper into them, I began to think that I was actually going to undo one of the core tenets of the philosophy of my life. But, in actuality, I don't think I did. I think I actually proved its, more, its point more. This is a very surprising to me. I was almost sure that I would be wrong, just like I am about a lot of things, and have repeatedly admitted that I've been wrong about a lot of things while doing this blog and podcast. You guys are listening to the podcast. <laughs> it's not about not being ignorant to things. It's about knowing these things are happening and choosing to not care about all of them. It's about selecting the things that you find most valuable and preferable and working to make sure that they are taken care of in proper fashion. Self-awareness, like always, is the key. Then things might actually get better, and you won't just be shitting out of your mouth trying to tell people about the nothing you're doing when you think you're doing something. Awareness today is not awareness at all. Awareness today is simply indoctrination with a bow on it to make you feel good. Awareness, in essence, is twofold. Observation and choice. You must not be ignorant and see the world around you. However, you must defer to the law of comparative value advantage and choose what you value in order to assert your values into your own life. A man who values everything values nothing, and a man who is aware of everything might, might as well, should he make poor choices. You know, like getting Justin Timberlake coked out with one of your interns just before you hit a billion members on your website. So, that's the post, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really was kind of nervous about getting that out there. Kind of controversial, but again, we're not going to unearth the monster in our closet unless we talk about it. So, thanks for listening, guys. Can you dig it? Own the day. Open your mind. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?